First Samuel chapter 30. If you have your Bible, you might want to follow along. Beginning in verse one, it says, now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city and there it was burned with fire and their wives, their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. So David went, he and the six hundred men who were with him, and came to the brook Betsor, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued, he and four hundred men For 200 stayed behind who were so weary that they could not cross the brook Betsor. Then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. And they let him drink water. And they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him. For he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. Then David said to him, To whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion of the southern area of the of the Cherethites in the territory which belongs to Judah and of the southern area of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, can you take me down to this troop? So he said, Swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this troop. And when he had brought him down, there they were, spread out over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Then David attacked them. From twilight until the evening of the next day, not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives and nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. And David took all the flocks and herds that had driven before those other livestock and said, this is David's spoil. Now David came to the 200 men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, whom they also had made to stay at the brook Betsor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with them. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children that they may lead them away and depart. But David said, my brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as is his part who goes down to the battle. So shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. 
So it was from that day forward, he made a a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Now, when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. To those who were in Bethel, those who were in Ramot of the south, those who were in Jatir, those who were in Aror, those who were in Sifmot, those who were in Eshtemoa, those who were in Rakal, those who were in the cities of Jeremiahites, those who were in the cities of the Kenites, those who were in Ormah, those who were in Korachan, those who were in Adhak, those who were in Ebron, to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove. Rehab and recovery are big business in the United States of America. As a matter of fact, if you Google rehab and rehabilitation, you can find people who are recovering from everything imaginable. If David, the future king, were to start a recovery group, he might begin the conversation with, Hello, my name is David Ben-Jesse, and I am a recovering backslider. (laughs) You know, when I was thinking about this message, I remembered a conversation that I had a long time ago. Someone said, didn't David know he would be king? And I said, of course he knew. And he said, then why didn't he act like a king? And my blurted response shocked even myself. I said, why don't we as Christians act like people who are joint heirs with Christ? Don't you realize that you are going to rule and reign with Jesus? You've been delivered out of darkness. You've been delivered out of death. You haven't been delivered so that you can live a life of emptiness and darkness and mediocrity and constant enslavement. That isn't who you are. How is it that we forget that we are the constant companions of Jesus forever? David has been living a life of backslidden circumstances. Those of you who have been following along in our study in the book of 1 Samuel realize that because he has been persecuted and hounded and harassed, he has left the promised land and associated with Achish, the Philistine king. He has brought himself to a circumstance of wickedness and and estrangement from God, so much so that he has been called out before Achish to present himself in battle against his own people, and God supernaturally delivers him because of the petty jealousy and wickedness of the other Philistines, and they force them back home to march back to Ziklag. David and his men return home only to find that their city has been charred and burned and ruined and their families kidnapped. I called my mom today and I asked her, how are you doing, mom? And she said, I have good days and I have bad days. That's something we all say, huh? I've had good days and I've had bad days. And David has had good days and he's had bad days. But this day... This day is quite possibly the worst day of his life. I mean, imagine you come home and the city that you live in is completely burned to the ground. Imagine that your wife or your husband and all of your children have been kidnapped by terrorists. Don't you think that that qualifies as perhaps the worst day? You know, we all have good days, we all have bad days, but some of us have what I call the worst day. The worst day might be when you go to the hospital and the doctor tells you that your 13-year-old child only has six months to live. It's the day when your husband or your wife comes home and says, I've made a terrible mistake, I never loved you and I never will, and they walk out the door. It's the day... That you've been working at the job for not 10, not 20, but even 30 years. And they've said, guess what? Your job is over with. You don't have a job anymore. When you don't have a family, when you don't have a life, when you don't have a job, when you don't have a future, it looks like your whole world is about to collapse. 
So one of the things that we're going to look at is how David deals on this, the most horrible day of his life. Their first response is to weep. Look what it says again in verse 1. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire. Now remember, David and his men have been asked to lead the battle in chapter 29. The march would have taken three days at a quick pace because from the place where the battle was going to begin against Saul to Ziklag was about 100 miles. Now do the math. 600 men have to go 100 miles on foot or horseback. And the thought of the family must have been racing through their mind. And when they got home, the town is gone for the most part, burned with fire. Now, again, this should cause us to pause and remember something. David has been living a life of unrepentant disobedience. And the road of disobedience always leads to a place of ruin and remorse. Even though we may think that we're having fun, we may think that our sin has no real consequences. It always does. And instead of delight and joy and welcome ruin, there is a disaster at the end of the road for David and his men. And for most of us, one day will stand out among all the rest. It will be the day that you characterize as the worst day. The worst day. And in verses 2 through 4, it says, And they had taken captives of the women and those who were there from the small to the great. They didn't kill anyone. But see, at this point, they don't know that. They don't know exactly the extent of what has happened, but carried them away. And so David and his men came to the city. And this is what the Bible says. And there it was. If you've ever come on a tragic scene. That's what goes through your mind. And there it was. I I think I remember that when I first went to Ground Zero. Uh, It happened on a Tuesday. I got there on a Sunday night. On Monday morning, I'm at Ground Zero, 15 acres of burned, charred rubble that smelled of garbage and death. And there it was. And the first thought that came to my mind was, How could something so valuable become so worthless so quickly? And you can imagine. It says, So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, their wives, their sons, their daughters, captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. That is... A great description of emotional catastrophe. I hope and pray that those days are few and far between in your life. Where you have wept till you couldn't squeeze out one more tear. All of the moisture in your body is gone. This is the powerful emotional response. And by the way, that becomes the first thing that you do on the on the worst day that ever happens to you. You weep. Now, I want you to just put yourself in David's position just for a moment. David's life is up in smoke. His family and the families of all of the men who are with him are either dead or enslaved. What do you think he was thinking at that point? Do you think he was beginning to blame himself? Do you think he was beginning to think, what have I done? What have I done? How could I have possibly have done this? His family and the families of everything that he's with, who's with him. Now, isn't that exactly 
what sin does to all of us, it enslaves us and it ruins us and it takes everything away from us. And this is David's darkest moment. He has sown the seeds of rebellion. He has sown the seeds of unbelief. His home is a smokestack. And David begins to weep and sob. And as he weeps and sobs, everyone around him begins to weep and sob. And you've got to understand something. These guys are pirates and killers. I don't know if you've ever seen a group of gang members tattooed from top to bottom in a supermax prison. Imagine the most hardened criminals that you have ever met and there is an emotional meltdown. These men can handle the loss of mere material things. But everything. How do you respond when you've lost everything? And it says in David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people were grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now I want you to understand something. It begins with emotional distress and weeping, and it continues... With bitterness. Look what it says. Now David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him. You know, on the worst day of your life, the temptation to embrace bitterness can be overwhelming. On the worst day of your life, almost invariably you want to blame someone for what has happened. This is my wife's fault. This is my husband's fault. This is the boss's fault. This is the economy's fault. This is the president's fault. This is this person's fault. This is that person's fault. And you know what's really interesting? There might be a measure of truth associated with some of that blame. I suspect that these men, the bitterness was so overwhelming that it seemed to make perfect sense to blame David. Now, again, here's part of the challenge. The men want to stone David, but remember what I said to you earlier? If we put ourselves in David's place and in David's circumstance, do you think that his own conscience is accusing him? David, David, look at what you've done. So the men accuse him. His own conscience is accusing him. Doesn't it make perfect sense that Satan would join in? Yes, get David. Let's kill David. You know, Paul in the New Testament writes, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, it says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. On the worst day of your life, after having sobbed thoroughly, you're going to be tempted to be, become bitter. But that becomes the second thing that you have to do on the worst day of your life. You have to be able to resist bitterness. Because if you don't, it will eat you alive. Henry or Harry Emerson Fostick wrote, quote, Bitterness imprisons life. Love releases it. Bitterness paralyzes life. Love empowers it. Bitterness sickens life. Love heals it. Bitterness blinds life. Love anoints its eyes. You know, we could just as easily insert the word grace for love. Bitterness imprisons life. Grace releases it. Grace empowers it. Grace heals it. Grace anoints it. And so we understand Hebrews chapter 12. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. You want to avoid bitterness? Then you're going to have to embrace grace. Remember what grace is. It's the undeserved favor of God. The troops aren't simply questioning David's leadership. They're wondering if David is fit to live. That's quite a leap. 
Remember, just a few days earlier, they were ready to march with David into battle and risk and give their own lives. These are the men that David trained in the caves of Engedi. Remember? They've walked with him and they've talked with him and they've fought with him and they've been with him. Can you imagine, David? Serves me right. I'm just getting exactly what I deserve. Now remember what David has been going through. He's been running from God. And remember what running from God does. Disobedience has resulted in his disillusionment. Disillusionment has led to disappointment. Disappointment has led to depression. Depression has produced distrust from his men and despair in his own heart. On the worst day of your life after weeping and fighting with bitterness... You run out of options. If you've ever come to a place where it was so low, it was so dark, it was so empty, you can't even imagine what it would be like to dig the hole even a little bit deeper. That's where David is. He, he can't run back to King Achish. He certainly can't trust Saul. David's friend Jonathan isn't there to bail him out. There is only one way out. And that's up. On the worst day of your life, after weeping and resisting bitterness, there's only one way out, and that's up. If ever there was a time that David would have to trust God, cry out to God, believe in the Lord, it was then. Chuck Swindoll writes, David had reached the point in life where some people think of taking their own lives. He was so far down the ladder of despair that he had reached the bottom rung, the last stop, the place where you either jump off into oblivion or you cry out to God for forgiveness. For rescue. The wonderful thing is that we do have a choice because God never gives up on his children. And so David is about to make the right choice. And that's what it says in the text. Look what it says. But David. He says, all the people grieve every man, but David, but David at the end of verse six. If you're one of those kinds of people who underline your Bible, this is one of the underlining ones. But David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. Many years ago, I heard a preacher remark about how he'd like to write a book about the big butts in the Bible. As a matter of fact, there are a number of remarkable big butts in the Bible. Here's a sample. Acts chapter 7, verse 9. And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. Genesis 48:21. And Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I die, but God shall be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Romans 5, 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commends his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Emptiness, darkness, loneliness, wickedness, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now David's men have clearly left David with the impression that he's to blame. His conscience certainly agrees with the men. But David understands something. Either I will trust God or I will die. You know, I had a friend in Southern California who came to that point in his life. He literally told the story of how he had a shotgun and he put it inside of his mouth. And he was trying to figure out a way that he could push The trigger. And he heard a voice. Are you done? What do you mean? Are you done? Are you at the end? 
You've lost all reason and all hope. Are you ready pretty much to fully, finally, completely, unequivocally, unashamedly give up on yourself? Yes. Well, good. Because now I can use you. I will come to you. And I will use you. And I will fill you with my spirit and I will forgive you and I will redeem you and I will use your life. And he encouraged himself in the Lord. You know, John writes in first John chapter three, verse 20. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. Think about what's happening. David turns to the Lord and this becomes one of the most remarkable things of all. No matter how miserable, no matter how difficult, no matter how tragic our circumstances. God is faithful. One Bible writer says it took the shock of disaster to shake David out of his unbelief and to exercise his former faith, bringing God brought courage, rest and assurance. And the heart once more stayed on him would be in perfect peace. Now, think about that. If you can trust the Lord on the darkest day in the darkest moment of your life, I guarantee you something. He will be faithful. The Lord will be faithful. Now I want you to think this through. Has David backslidden? Yes. Has he been less than faithful? Yes. What if everyone around me wants me dead? Doesn't this become a perfect picture? David hasn't been faithful. Everyone around David wants David dead. But God's still willing to show up. You know, we change, but the Lord never changes. The Lord loves us and he's willing to take us back if we will confess our sin and repent of our sin and forsake our sin and turn to the Lord. And you can cry out to the true and the living God for help and hope. And again, our knowledge of God's goodness and grace and mercy isn't what's supposed to motivate us to sin, but it's to motivate us to refrain from sinning. Jesus promises never to leave us, never to forsake us. And the burning of Ziklag and the kidnapping of his family became the whip, the rod, the stick that God used to prod David to come back to himself. And I know if you tried to pick something for you, you probably wouldn't pick a jail. You wouldn't pick your wife leaving you or your husband leaving you. You wouldn't pick a fatal illness. You wouldn't pick a financial disaster. You wouldn't pick a personal crisis to be the tool that would motivate you to come to a place of repentance and submission. But guess what? God is willing to. To use anything. And he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the sovereign God. And he has all of the resources of all of creation available to him. And guess what he's willing to do? Whatever it takes to bring you to a place of humility and brokenness. So that you will love him and cry out to him. Have you allowed disaster or crisis or pain or the burning of Ziklag and the capture of your family to make you bitter or to make you better? Sometimes this is exactly what disasters do. They force us back to a simple trust where we find ourselves where we always needed to be on our knees and look what it says in verse 7. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, Please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. Remember, the ephod is that divine instrument that, that they would use in order to discern the will of God. And so now David... After he has wept, after he has resisted bitterness, after he has encouraged himself in the Lord, purposes in his heart to hear from God. 
And so in verse 8, it says, so David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I pursue the troop? Shall I overtake them? And he that is God and God answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. Now, think about that. David inquires of the Lord. After going through this series of circumstance, do you know what David is willing to do? You know what David is wanting to do on the worst day of his life? He's willing to pray. He's ready to pray. You know, early on in my ministry, one of my very first jobs, it was a volunteer job, is I was a chaplain. I was a chaplain of a, of a police department, and then I was a chaplain with a bunch of firefighters and from time to time, I would go out on ambulance rides with people. And there would be a man who's had a massive heart attack. There would be a woman who has had a stroke. There would be people who have experienced all kinds of difficult and, and, and heart-wrenching circumstances. And when you are in the back of an ambulance ready and riding to the place where it might be the last place that you ever go, and this might be the last person you ever speak to, and I would say to them, and I would hold their hand, and I would look in their eye if they were conscious, and I, and I would say, do you want me to pray with you? You know how many of them refused? None. Zero. Now, I'm sure that there are people who would refuse. There are recalcitrant and hardened people who, for whatever reason, they're not willing to hear from God. But you know what it's been my experience? That most people in pain, and most people with an uncertain future want to pray. And David is ready to pray. David is ready to ask God for help. And remember, he's been a little bit distant from his Savior. He's been removed from his rock. He's been without his strength. He has been far from his strong tower and a compass needle always points north unless something distracts the needle. And so David was used to trusting the Lord and inquiring of the Lord and sacrificing to the Lord. But that was another life. And that was another circumstance. But now David is ready to trust him again. Inquire again. Sacrifice again. He's ready to get back in touch with the Lord. Are you? Are you ready to pray? Are you ready to listen? Have you backslidden? Have you experienced the chastening of the Lord? Has there been some disaster in your life? Are you willing to repent of your sin and invite the Lord into your life to deal with the disaster? And remember, when he calls for the ephod, it's the link to God, and for you as a Christian, your link to God is the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what the New Testament says? There's only one mediator between God and man, and who is it? It's the man Christ Jesus, David's son. He's our ephod. He is the one who directs us and leads us and speaks to us. If ever there was a time for advice, if ever there was a time for grace, if ever there was a time for love, if ever there was a time for you to cry out, you could be spared a world of hurt and grief if you'll just cry out now. If you're willing to say, Lord, I want to hear from you and I need to hear from you. By the way, God doesn't put David in divine time out. And I find this very interesting. He doesn't make David wait six months or six years. He doesn't say, okay, I'll speak to you when we bring forth the fruits of repentance. The consequences of David's disobedience is punishment enough. God knows his heart and God is willing to speak to him. Now think about this. If you've ever said to a child, please don't climb up that tree. You could fall down and you could hurt yourself. And let's say, unlike you, the child decides to do something that is clearly wrong. And the child climbs up the tree and falls from the tree and breaks his or her leg. Do you beat the child and say, okay, I'm going to spank you? Or do you think the broken leg is sufficient consequences 
for that act of rebellion and disobedience. On the worst day of his life, he prays. And God speaks. I think that that's powerful. Unlike Saul, God hears David. Could God have rebuked David for flirting with Achish? He could have said, oh, before we have this conversation, I want to talk to you a little bit about your rebellion with the Philistines. I want to talk to you about going to the land. I want to talk to you about your failure and leaving the land of promise. I want to talk to you about your foolish decisions. I want you to talk about the evil consequences. But David is helpless. And in his helplessness, he just simply cries out to God. And God's response, look what it says. Go after them and you will recover all. You know what's important about that? God speaks to him and gives him a promise. David has something that each and every one of us desperately need. Instructions from God. Words from the Lord. Promises from the Lord. Do you realize that each and every one of you have exactly that every time you open up your Bible? You have promises of God. Now think about David's journey on the road to recovery. He has wept in verse 4. He's refused bitterness in verse 6. He's encouraged himself in the Lord at the end of verse 6. He receives a word from the Lord. (laughs) And look at verse 9. So David went. He and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Betsor, and where those who stayed who were left behind. Now, David comes to a place where he can regain his vision. Because he has been able to hear from the Lord, he's able to come up with a plan and a purpose and a, and a vision in order to get back to that place where he needed to be. And when you're in a trial, when you're in a difficult circumstance, one of the things that I would encourage you to do is exactly what David is doing. And that's renew your vision. Now, we have a euphemism in, in the Christian culture. We typically say, well, what's your vision? And vision becomes a way of us saying, how are you going to accomplish what God's plan and purpose is? But I'm going to give you a different definition of vision. Vision is the ability to see God in the circumstance that you find yourself in. It's how to see the Lord in the circumstance that you find yourself in. And David comes to a place where he can regain his vision. He sees God in the circumstance. And by the way, apart from the Lord, he has little or no chance of recovering what he's lost. But with the promise of God, he has certainty. Look what it says in verse 10. But David pursued He and 400 men for 200 stayed behind those who were so weary that they couldn't cross the brook Betsor. Now, I want you to understand something. With a renewed vision, David also has a renewed passion. He finds the strength to go forward. David has wept. He's refused bitterness. He's encouraged himself in the Lord. He's received a word from the Lord. He's renewed his vision. He's regained his passion. He's regained it in such a way that he can put one step in front of the other and pursue his enemies in faith. And guess what's going to happen? Everything's going to go right. Everything's going to go right. David is with the Lord. David's trusting the Lord. And like I said, in the natural, his chances are slim. His men have already been marching for three days and the enemy have quite a head start. And one third of the men are so weary. They're so tired. They're so fatigued that they can't go forward. But I want you to understand something. They're not useless. They're still useful. 
because they can stay and guard the supplies. The heavy equipment would have to be transported by the remaining 400 men. They're not strong enough to do that. They are strong enough to go forward in the battle. And I want you to understand something. The fact that they stayed with the supplies, I want you to think this through. The fact that they stayed with the supplies means that they anticipated victory. And with the anticipation would come participation. They would become a part of the battle. They're not anticipating losing. They're anticipating winning. And this is the same in our Christian walk, in our Christian battles. Remember, the Bible says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Sometimes you may feel so weak and so tired and so hurt that you can't get up. You're trying to open your mouth to pray and no words come out. You're trying to read the words on the page of your Bible, but you're blinded by your own tears. Sometimes Christians are not physically or financially fit to participate in the heat of the battle. But we can still guard the supplies. We can stay. And we can pray. And make no mistake about it. It's the prayer that's going to provide the impetus to win the battle. Remember when Moses lifted up his hands to pray, they would prevail. But when he would drop his hands, the battle would go the other way. As a matter of fact, when we're introduced to Joshua in the Bible, the first time we meet Joshua, he comes out of nowhere and Moses prays and Joshua fights. And Joshua is able to go forward. When Moses' hands are up and the battle recedes when his hands go down, we can pray. Prayer makes the battle so that we can go forward and fight. Now, there's an interesting little aside. Look what it says. But David pursued, and then in verse 11 it says, Then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate, and they let him drink water. Now, this is interesting. This Egyptian is a godsend. Remember who the cruel Amalekites are. These are the wicked people who pursued the children of Israel out of Egypt. And when the lame and the blind and the broken and the elderly would go to the end of the train, the Amalekites would come and they would kill them. These were cruel, wicked people. These are the people that God ordered Saul to eliminate. And here they are, back. The cruel Amalekites have left this young man to die. But just think, their cruelty will be their own undoing. They could have placed this kid on a camel. They could have created a litter to drag him away. But they wouldn't do it. And the moment that they wouldn't do it, God was going to take their wickedness and their cruelty and use it for their own destruction. <laughs> You know, what some people call blind luck or a lucky break. The Bible asserts over and over again is the hand of God. You can say that to the person who says to you next, good luck. And you can say, hey, look, I I already know. Luck is what a fool calls it when God gives him a break. The young Egyptian has been abandoned by his Amalekite master to be the victim of weather or exposure or an animal attack. He is sick. He is dying. He's of no use to his master. But David finds the slave and ministers to him. Now think about this for just a moment. One chapter earlier, David is a slave. He's a slave of Achish. But now David is a servant. And he's ministering to a throwaway slave himself. You know what's interesting about that? This is exactly what David's son does for us. The Lord Jesus. We're slaves. Thrown away by the devil. Thrown away by this world. Thrown away. We, we are left to perish. We are abandoned by our masters. The world, the flesh, the devil. We're left to die. We're left to perish. And then Jesus comes along to our aching, breaking, sin-filled circumstances. He, he shows up and he offers us a way out. What are you doing here? I've been thrown away. 
Tell me again what you're doing here. I've been left here to die. The Lord Jesus gives us bread. His body. And living water. The Holy Spirit. Eternal life. The young man is found and he is fed. But guess what? The young man isn't comfortable until he makes a deal with David. He says, look, if I help you out, you've got to promise not to kill me. (laughs) The young slave wants complete freedom. He wants complete deliverance from his former bondage. Do you blame him? When Jesus came along and rescued you, Is it wrong for you to say, look, Jesus, I want complete deliverance. I don't want to be a slave to my old master. I don't want to serve him anymore. And you know what? David gives it to him. And you know what's interesting? Jesus does exactly the same thing. We're placed just outside of the reach of our enemies when we are in Christ And that's exactly what happens here. And they gave him a piece of cake, two clusters of raisins. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him, for he hadn't eaten bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. I remember when I worked for social services, this guy came in and he says, I haven't eaten anything for three days. And I said, hey, you know, I just ate this morning. Food still tastes the same. Yeah, he didn't think it was funny either. There's certain jokes that work with certain people. But when you're hungry and you're needy, Jesus imparts forgiveness and acceptance. I want you to look at verse 16, and it says, And when they had brought him down, there they were, spread out over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing. Because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. This becomes a type and a picture of demons. They think that they've got you. They think your life is over with. They think that they're celebrating in your sick circumstances. And look what happens in verse 17. Then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except for 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. You know what? On the worst day of your life. (laughs) After you have wept and after you've resisted bitterness and after you've encouraged yourself in the Lord and after you've got a word from God, after you've renewed your vision and regained your passion, that's what you need to do is attack. It's to go forward and it is to do battle. And remember what it says in Ephesians chapter 6, that you are to put on the helmet of salvation. You are to put on the full armor of God. You are to prepare yourself like the man or the woman who is the warrior and you're going into battle. And when you are in a fight, you have to understand something that your enemy will kill you at a moment's notice. Make no mistake about it. Even in our culture and in our society, we have a recalcitrant enemy who sends over bombers to try and figure out a way wickedly to undermine our circumstances. The devil is exactly the same way. If you think for a moment that the devil wouldn't hesitate to kill you, the first opportunity he has been given, you're sadly mistaken if you think that he's on your side. The only thing that keeps you alive at this very moment is the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So David attacks. And then David recovers all. Look what it says. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives. Now remember what the Amalekites represent in the Bible. They are a type and a picture of sin. That's what sin does. It robs you. Satan comes to rob and kill and destroy, to take things from you. And then in verse 19, look what it says. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. This is a miracle. Do you understand it? This is a full on miracle. No one has died. Everything is there. All that 
is important has been recovered. And so they begin to enter into victory. David recovered all. You know, after you've wept and after you've resisted bitterness and after you've encouraged yourself in the Lord and after you've gotten a word from God, after you've regained your passion, after you've attacked, after you recovered everything, the thing to do is to celebrate the victory. God is good. Jesus has won everything. The cross of Jesus Christ has created a mechanism so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. And David and his men returned to the place where they left the weary 200 guarding the supplies. See what it says <laughs> in verse 21. Now David came to the hundred men who were so weary that they couldn't follow David, whom they had made to stay at the brook Betsor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with them. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then the wicked and the worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, because they didn't go with us, we won't give them anything of the spoil except what we've recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. Now, think about this for a moment. The wicked and worthless men complain that these men don't deserve any of the spoils. They wimped out when the battle was tough, when the sacrifice was great, when the risk meant death. They made their boast. Now, think about this. They think it's their courage that has created the mechanism so that they could recover everything. It was really their pride boasting. It was their pride that was talking. In other words, in their arrogance and in their conceit, they believed that the victory had come about because of their own strength. Doesn't that sound familiar to some of you? You know, if you were a good Christian like I'm a good Christian, if you were strong like me, if you'd read your Bible like me, and if you'd go to church like me, if you'd do this and if you'd do that, you know the reason why I'm a victorious Christian and you're not a victorious Christian? It's because I'm cool and you're not. How could you be so stupid? How could you even for a moment, how could you even for a moment Think that it's your superior faith or your superior humility or your superior discipleship that has created a mechanism for recovery. You would be so wrong. They thought that they were more courageous, but they really weren't. It was their pride. And so David does something. David says, my brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered us into the land or into the hand, the troop that had come against us. Look what it says. For who will heed you in this matter? Who's going to listen to you? Don't you realize how stupid you sound? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share and share alike. So it was from that day forward he made a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Now think about this. Here's what David is doing. David is giving all the glory to God. He reminds the men the source of their victory, the source of their restoration, the source of the recovery. How could they possibly take credit for it. How can you? Learn the lesson. Learn the lesson. My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered us into our hand, the troop that came against us. I can almost hear the protest. Wait a minute. They're weaklings and we're strong. They're cowards and we're warriors. In the New Testament, it says in Romans 14, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. You know what's interesting about that scripture? It says you receive them. You don't reject them. The Bible says we are to receive those who are weak in the faith and not to reject one who is weak in the faith. And by the way, weak doesn't mean feeble in strength. It means sensitive in conscience. Paul is talking about people who don't have the freedom of eating things like meat sacrificed to idols with a clear conscience. What he's basically saying is there are certain people who can't do what you do. They don't have your grace. 
They've never experienced the grace and the mercy like you've experienced grace and mercy. And David establishes a Christ-like principle. The fruits of recovery are to be shared by the weak and the strong alike. Think carefully for a moment. Is grace only for the weak? Is grace for everyone? Is grace for the imperfect? Is grace for Billy Graham? Is grace for the saintliest saint? Is grace for the most abject sinner? We are to be generous and gracious when God has blessed us. In John fourteen twenty seven, it says, Peace I leave to you, my peace I give to you. Not, not like the world gives. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus gives things differently than the way the world gives things. Jesus gives grace and he gives mercy and he gives love and he gives forgiveness and he's looking to restore people. Jesus shares all that he has with his beloved co-heirs. And you know who that is? That's you. Jesus says, I'm going to take you into heaven. I don't deserve to go to heaven. Right on. I'm going to you're going to sit with me on a throne for all of eternity. I don't deserve a throne. I know. It's true. You don't. You're going to live forever in heaven with Christ. Don't deserve it. You Exactly. You don't. Now look what it says in verse 26. It says, Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Here's the present for you, for the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. Now think about this. David not only returns everything to these guys, but he returns everything to the leaders. These are the elders of the tribe of his clan, Judah. Now, do you think as he lavishes gifts on the people from his own tribe, when it comes time for David to occupy the throne of Israel, when he is going to wear the king, wear the crown, do you think that this is going to go a long way towards establishing his credibility as the king of Israel? This is exactly what David's son will later do. He gives gifts to people who don't deserve it. David gives gifts from the abundance that God has given to him. Those gifts are going to be amazing. And then again, David recites the laundry list of where all the goodies have come from. As you look at Ramot, Jatir, Sifmot, Eshtemoa, Rakal. Um, the Kenites, Orma, Korashan, Atah, these are all of the areas that were attacked and that he makes the provision for them. And so, again, think about this circumstance. On the worst day of David's life, he does ten things. He weeps in verse 4. He resists bitterness in verse 6. At the end of verse 6, he encourages himself in the Lord. In verse 8, he gets a word from the Lord. In verse 9, he renews his vision. In verse 10, he regains his passion. In verse 17, he attacks. In verse 18, he gets it all back. In verse 20, he celebrates. And to the end of the chapter, he's generous with all. On the worst day of your life, give what you have. To the people who deserve it and for the, for the people who don't deserve it. Our God is a God of recovery. He restores what the locusts have eaten. David gets it all back. You know, the only hopeless situation we face as Christians is the one in which we elect to neglect God. The only hopeless situation that you will ever experience in this life is when you weep and you don't resist the bitterness and you fail to encourage yourself in the Lord and you simply choose to live with the grief and live with the bitterness if ever there was a time 
to see your life in the life of David? It's probably now. Have you ever experienced feeling not belonging, of being displaced, of being disillusioned, of having those feelings that you couldn't be trusted? If depression is killing you, if discouragement is killing you, reach up. Come home. The Father's waiting at the door. And He's ready to forgive you. And He's ready to speak to you. He's ready to instruct you. He's ready to renew your vision so that you can regain your passion so that you can attack. So that you can recover all and celebrate victory and be what God has always meant for you to be. A generous provider. A giver instead of a taker. In Jesus' name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing chapter. Lord, for every single person who will have some good days and will have some bad days, Lord, we know that there will be that one day, that dark day, where everything seems burned and everything seems gone. Lord, I pray. That we would learn from David's experience. And that we ourselves would learn to trust David's son. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.